Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, and I sure hope you're great, and I'm really glad you're here. And so are all of us. Also want to wish you a happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Hanukkah, Happy Kwanzaa, and whatever you celebrate, whatever you believe in, uh, from the bottom of my, my heart, happy holidays. I really hope you have an opportunity to be with the people you love this time of year and to enjoy some happiness and some peace. All right, there's been a lot going on lately, be it about anti-Semitism, diver- diversity, equality, and inclusion, and sort of the core values that uh, the United States will be governed by and will latch on to. And this is really what I want to share with you about today, just to talk, you and me. And um, you might not agree with everything I have to say, and that's okay. Um, I don't know what happened in our world where if we don't agree with each other, we hate each other. Um, That seems insane to me. Most of the people in my life, I don't agree with them about everything, including my spouse. Um, But I do respect them and I do admire them. And I appreciate anybody who wishes to engage in real dialogue and is willing to consider thinking, reflective, not just reflexive, thinking about important topics. And even if we disagree in the end, steel sharpens steel. And so if we can have real, open, unedited dialogue with each other, not yelling, um, maybe we can have a breakthrough in understanding and a breakthrough in results. And as we head into 2024, that is my wish for the holiday season and the new year, that we have a breakthrough in real, authentic, civilized, thoughtful dialogue. All right, a couple things I want to share with you. First, a story. Uh, recently, I got a, um, I got a message on LinkedIn from a gal that I only know in the digital world. She seems like a wonderful person. She's a marketing executive and uh, she listens to our podcasts and newsletters and the like. And she has a podcast. She, inter- she um, invited me on the podcast and had a great time. And she seems like a wonderful woman, but I, I don't really know her. Anyway, um, we were going back and forth on a LinkedIn exchange. And in that exchange, she shares with me that she just had a baby. Her and her wife just had a baby. And we start talking back and forth. I congratulate her and ask the baby's name and see if she'd be willing to send me a photo. I'm a big fan of babies. Our family just had a a baby and uh, my niece did. And uh, uh, around here, we think babies are fucking fantastic, especially when they're born to good people who are committed to raising those children and loving those children. What could be better than a great couple or a great group of folks who have a baby, love that baby, and do everything in their power to uh, provide that child with a great life and enjoy that child? Um, It's wonderful. So she shares this with me and we go back and forth. I tell her about my niece and we have this great sort of baby exchange. And then at some point in the exchange, she also makes sort of a joke that the next baby they're going to have, her wife will have. And at some point in the exchange, I share with her, isn't it great? I think it's wonderful in addressing her over the message that you feel so comfortable in sharing that you and your wife had a baby. It warms my heart. I have queer people in my family. 
I grew up with queer people. I went to an alternative school, which was sort of the last place for all of the misfit toys. And so there were trans people and gay people and queer people and uh, people who didn't have any kind of, we didn't call it identify as back then, but people who were just different. And so I got a lot of room for different. And uh, I believe the different will inherit the earth. I also remember how horrible it was to be queer back then. You see, my mother was working in a hospital in the 80s during the AIDS crisis. And I would go to visit her. And my wife, uh, my mother, not my wife, my mother <laughs> is a very empathetic person. And when I was in my early teens, she introduced me to a gay man who was dying in the hospital of AIDS. And I ended up spending a fair amount of time with him. And it uh, made a huge impact on me. Anyway, all that is uh, to say that in my lifetime, I have seen the queer community make many, many breakthroughs to the point where, without concern, this gal on LinkedIn feels completely fine sharing this with me. And I couldn't be happier for her and her wife and their family. And as I shared with her, the fact that we live at a time where she can be legally married and she can be open about who she is. And a huge percentage of our world in the United States is going to think that's great. And that's legendary. So that's the first story I want to share with you. The second one, uh, my brother from another mother, Category Pirates uh, uh, co-creator and partner, Eddie Yoon, recently sent me this and it um, made me incredibly angry. Let me read you the headline. I think this is a CNN. Yeah, it's a CNN headline. We'll put all the references to anything I mention here uh, as an external source in the show notes. You can get them at lockhead.com if you want. Okay, so the headline reads, the nation's largest credit union rejected more than half of its black conventional mortgage applicants. The piece goes on to say, quote, Navy Federal Credit Union, which lends to military service members and veterans, approved more than 75 percent of white borrowers who applied for a new conventional home purchase mortgage in 2022, according to the most recent data available from the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Now, get ready for this. But I'm still quoting here, but less than 50 percent of black borrowers who applied for the same type of loan were approved, end quote. Then the article goes on to say, a deeper statistical analysis performed by CNN found that black applicants to Navy Federal were more than twice as likely to be denied as white applicants. Even more than a dozen different variables, including income, debt-to-income ratio, property value, down payment purchase, and neighborhood characteristics were the same. So let's be clear about this. The loans were the same. And if you were white, 75% of people got the money and could have their dream of home ownership come true. But if you were black, under the exact same circumstances, only 50% of those borrowers were approved. This is fucking evil. It's not just systemic racism. It's evil. And banks like Wells Fargo have been charged with this multiple times over and over and over again. They've paid fines. To the best of my knowledge, nobody at Wells Fargo ever went to jail. 
If you know different, please let me know. I would love to know that. And as of this recording, to the best of my knowledge, and again, if you know different, I would love to hear it, uh, no Navy Federal Credit Union executives are in jail. This is disgusting. It's fucking disgusting. This is racism right in front of us. And anybody who's just, anybody who cares about equality and justice and the pursuit of happiness for all must acknowledge that there is systemic racism against certain groups. There's no doubt about that. And we need to fight it. We really need to fight it. The 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution says, quote, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States. It goes on to say, nor deny any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Just let that cook in your frontal lobe for a second. I think the net-net of this first piece I want to share with you is there is radical injustice on purpose. And in many areas, we've made great progress. And we need to continue to make great progress. All right, now let's turn to recent events. If you know me, if you follow me at all on social media, you know that I have been very vocal about the radical rise in Jew hate in the United States and in much of the uh, Western world. I find it shocking. Absolutely shocking. People don't seem to realize what happened on October 7th. They don't realize that this was the greatest killing of Jews uh, ever since the end of World War II and the Holocaust. And they don't seem to understand that who, uh, who Israel and the Jews are fighting is a group that says publicly over and over and over again, one of its primary, if not its primary purpose, is to kill all Jews. From the river to the sea, Palestine will be free. By definition, is a call for the annihilation of Israel. Period. And I've been shocked about how confused people are about this. I've also been shocked by how many people claim to care about Palestinians and the loss of life and civilian life in Palestine, which is horrible. Of course, it's fucking horrible. Nobody wants to see one innocent person die ever. And I will tell you, while I have never been the victim of war, one of my best friends was attacked by four evil in the middle of the night with knives and AR-15s, and he was attacked, robbed, kidnapped, and murdered. So I do have a direct experience of what it's like for evil to visit in the middle of the night someone you love and do the unspeakable. That's what happened on October 7th to people in Israel. And I cry for the mothers and fathers, brothers and sisters who are innocent in Palestine. But we also must understand that Israel has a right to defend itself and it can't live 
next to somebody who wants to do this over and over and over again. In spite of these realities, um, there has been a radical rise in Jew hate. And I couldn't quite figure out why. But the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn educated me. They taught me. And a massive light bulb and a bunch of dots connected in my head. So let's go to DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. What does DEI teach? Well, one of the things it teaches is that the world has only two groups. One, oppressors, and two, the oppressed. And if you're successful, you're the oppressor. Oppressed groups, good. Oppressor groups, bad. This is why... uh, I like to joke there's a new DEI reality show coming out on Netflix called Who Wants to Be America's Greatest Victims? Because fundamentally, that's what DEI is about, is if my group is victimized and the more victimized the group that I quote unquote identify with is, the more Scooby Snacks I get, the more rights, protections and opportunities that I get. Now, this is why Jew hate is enabled on these schools, at these schools. Because Jews, Israel, is meaningfully more successful than a number of their Arab counterparts. As Israel was building a rich culture, strong economy, and dominance and contribution in new technology category creation, that means Israel's the oppressor in spite of the fact that they gave Gaza back in 2005. Now, people who are pro-Palestinian like to blame Israel. And Israel is far from a nation that has not done wrong. It has done. It has done much wrong. As has the United States. As has every society, every empire, and every country of consequence over time. I'm not justifying it. I'm just saying this is what human beings do. They're not always perfect. They get it wrong. And sometimes they do horrible shit. So I'm not defending everything Israel's done. And I'm surely not defending everything the United States has ever done. With that said, the thing that is so perplexing to me about people who are pro-Palestinian, and I have Palestinian friends, and I've spoken with them as this has been playing out, is where are their outcries for the leaders of Hamas who regularly steal billions in international aid? The three leaders of Hamas are worth between three, four, and five billion dollars each. They move to Qatar. They live in lavish places and drive around in Bugattis, dooming their own people in Gaza. The average person in Gaza lives on $13 a day. And Hamas kills their own people at will, stones women to death, and throws queer people off the top of buildings. But in the United States and in the Western world, because Palestinians have less than Israelis, that makes Israel the oppressor. This quote-unquote ethos, this DEI ethos, has gone mental. I don't know if you saw it, but a couple weeks ago, Uh, a handful of what I would call brain donor Gen Zers discovered Osama bin Laden for the first time in their life. 
And they put things on, uh, on TikTok talking about, oh my God, everything I knew about the U.S. has come shattering down. And I read this letter from Osama bin Laden. Why did they fall for this? Because DEI taught them they're oppressors and oppressed. So when they read the bin Laden letter with no context, not having been alive on September 11th, they just said, oh, the U.S. is the oppressor. And so bin Laden was a good guy. That's what uh, that quote unquote thinking is what started uh, uh, the viral outbreak on TikTok. Some of these Middle Eastern scholars even declared things like, everything we learned about the Middle East, 9-11, and terrorism was a lie. Yeah, if you believe the word of a psychotic, mass-killing terrorist, of course. Give your head a fucking shake. Okay, now, back at DEI. I believe DEI more, more than likely started in a good place. When, when these ideas started to emerge, it made sense to me. My mother, Jackie, when she was a girl at 16 years old in Canada, she got a job working on an assembly line at a small balloon factory. And she was working next to a boy. And I can't remember the exact numbers, but I'll be directionally right. I think the 16-year-old guy she was working with uh, was making 75 cents an hour, and she was making 50. And if it wasn't that, it was something like that. Maybe he was making a buck and she was making 75 cents or something in that kind of order. And I asked my, uh, my mom, I said, Mom, how, how is that the case? What line of bullshit did the world, did Canada, did the world get fed that made that seem okay? And what she explained to me, and she's in her mid-70s, so this is not that long ago, really, is that back then, the quote-unquote thinking went like this. Women were only going to be in the workforce for a very short period of time. And they were probably not going to have meaningful jobs. And once they got married and have children, they'd be done and go home. Whereas a man had to uh, provide for a family and was going to work for his, the bulk of his adult life uh, at a job as opposed to in the home. Therefore, the man deserved more money by law. And then... Because of a radical, powerful, non-violent movement, the women's movement, things changed. And today, the practice of paying women less is not only not the law anymore, it's radically illegal. It's also important to underscore that the women's movement in the West, not only was it incredibly powerful, Yuval Harari, the legendary author of Sapiens, made a comment, I believe it was on, I think it was on Dak Shepard's podcast, which is a, a fantastic podcast. Um, he said something to the effect of the women's movement is the biggest social change movement to happen without any violence. And uh, I'd never really thought about that. And I think it's a very powerful insight. The other powerful insight I would share with you about the women's movement, uh, in addition to that, is the women's movement was about equality. My mother wanted to get paid the same amount as the male kid next to her. 
here's what the women's movement wasn't about. Women getting 25% more than men. All right, so DEI. I think it starts in a good place. I think it starts about equality. I think it starts about equal access. And I like to think that DEI starts where the Fourth Amendment is. It's about equal justice under the law. But then it metastasized into an evil set of laws and policies that advantage the chosen DEI groups, the oppressed groups. DEI teaches groupism. The group you are in or identify as determines your value. DEI's response to horrible, illegal uh, discrimination is legalized discrimination against the non-chosen DEI groups. How the fuck did the movement for justice and equality move from equality for all to legalized discrimination of few? Well, that's because DEI, if you listen to the words in category design, we teach category designers, listen to the words. Diversity, equity, inclusion. DEI preaches not equality. It teaches equal outcome. That's what equity is. It's about equity, not equality. DEI, now just stay with me, like socialism and communism, is about getting to an equal outcome for all not equality of opportunity for all. These are very, very different ideas with radically different ramifications. In my lifetime, we've gone from the equal rights movement, whether it was equal rights for women or equal rights for black people or equal rights for immigrants or fill in the blank group. It was called the equal rights movement. That's what it was. Now, it's the more than equal rights for the DEI chosen groups movement. Discrimination is now the law. In California, companies have legalized DEI quotas that they must meet. Now, I was born 42 days after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. Harvard President Claudine Gay was born 818 days after uh, Dr. King was killed. So in one generation, my generation, we've gone from Dr. King's, quote, I look to a day when people will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. In one generation, we've gone from that to Dr. Gay's, it depends on the context. That's how we get a world where Harvard says that the use of wrong, the wrong pronouns is violent abuse. And calling for the end of all Jews is not. Just let that sink in your head for a minute. And Harvard does not try to hide any of this. It's front and center. Their illegal, anti-American, racist, DEI elitism. It shows up in everything they do. And, and the ultimate hypocrisy and all of this bullshit was the ex-post announcing the continued support for President Gay which reads, 
quote, in this tumultuous and difficult time, we unanimously stand in support of President Gay, end quote. And if you paid close attention, the argument that President Gay and the presidents of MIT and Penn gave for allowing people to chant for the murder of all Jews is free speech. And I think the whole world went, what the fuck are you talking about? Harvard is the center of DEI police speech. They're the opposite of free speech. Uh, They're rated at the bottom in free speech. And get this. On this X post announcing the support of President Gay, Harvard turned off all comments. This institution, whose president had the nerve to sit there in front of Congress and lie that it supports diversity of thought, equity, and inclusion, wrapped herself in fucking free speech. And then, when they announced they were keeping this anti-American, illegal, DEI racist, this bastion of free speech, they fucking turned off the comments on the post when they normally leave them on. The hypocrisy of the DEI illegal elite knows no bounds. Now, let's talk about what the hell's going on at IBM. Uh, First, a little story, and then I'll tell you what just happened in case you missed it. Because interestingly enough, the mainstream media didn't cover this, and I found it quite shocking. And then I thought, of course, oh, yes, well, much of the mainstream media are the champions of DEI. So, of course, they didn't cover this. But first, a quick story. Last year, my buddy, a man who's been called the number one tech analyst in the world, Ray Wong, the founder and CEO of Constellation Research, invited me up to Half Moon Bay at about this time of year, November, December, to his super ding-dong executive enterprise thing, conference thing, to speak. And um, so that's what I did. So we're Ray and I are on stage and we're having a conversation. And early in the conversation, I swear, I said, fuck or shit, or I don't know what I said. I said something. And the audience kind of went, oh, you know. And so Ray and I started talking about swearing. And um, we started talking about the fact that at some companies, you can get fired for squaring. And then I made a comment. And after I made the comment, the whole room went silent. I made the following comment. I said, I could get fired at many an S&P 500 company and many a company here in Silicon Valley for talking the way that I do. And I'm not talking about swearing at somebody, like calling them a name. I'm talking about saying, yeah, that was a fucking great idea. Talking about enthusiasm, passion. And I said, that is a form of self-expression for me. Authentic self-expression. That's me, quote unquote, bringing my best self to work. And yet at many companies, I can't do that. I'd be fired. And then I made the following statement, and this is where shit got weird. I said, on the other hand, if I walked into the office at any of these same companies who would fire me for swearing in a dress with a wig on, in makeup, 
and declared that I want to be, I'm now a trans woman and I want you to call me Chrissy, I would be celebrated. They would throw parties for me. I would be embraced. And I think that's a great thing. I have a trans niece. I think that making the world a place that embraces the different might be the most legendary thing we can do of all. If not, it's way high up there. And so this change is an extraordinary one, just like the ability for queer people to get married is a legendary, extraordinary change. And we need to continue to fight for equal rights for people who are different and historically have not had equal rights. So I made this comment. The room got silent. And I said, so why is it one version of my authentic self-expression gets me fired, swearing, and the other, coming out as trans, gets me celebrated? Well, that's when, I didn't know this is who she was at the time, the head of DEI globally for IBM stood up in the room. And we began a debate about this. And what she said to me was, the reason for that was that some people find swearing offensive. And so if I swore working at her company, I would get fired. IBM would swear, would, would, would reprimand me and ultimately fire me for saying fuck in a meeting. So then I said to her, so the arbiter of behavior and what's acceptable and not at IBM is what one individual person finds offensive or not? I said, what if somebody said they found uh, trans people offensive? What would IBM do? The room got real fucking quiet. And Ray was looking at me like, oh my God, Lockhead, what are you doing? That's the hypocrisy. And then I said to her, you're wearing a pink sweater. She said, yes, I am. I said, well, what if I tell you that I find pink offensive, that I was abused as a child by somebody wearing a pink sweater and I'm triggered. And so nobody gets to wear pink sweaters in my presence. Of course, that would be ridiculous. And it exposes the insanity of the DEI at IBM and at many corporations. Okay, so now let's get into IBM. Their DEI page, the mantra on their DEI page says, be equal, be equal. Be equal is their campaign, is their mantra. Be equal champions diversity and inclusion for everyone, it says. They declare that they are about advancing racial equity. Not equality, equity which means everybody gets the same. It's like being a parent at holiday time with gifts. You got, if you got four kids, all four kids have to get roughly the same equal amount of gifts because that's the right thing to do. Well, that's how they want society. Everybody gets equally the same shit. It's the most anti-American thing I can think of. Well, guess what just happened? There's an internet sleuth guy, I'd never heard of him, but he's got a pretty good following, named James O'Keefe. And James was contacted by an IBM whistleblower with a tape, a recording, of an IBM internal Zoom video with their CEO, Arvind Krishna. And Krishna 
in the Zoom video is grilling the chairman and CEO of IBM subsidiary Red Hat, Paul Cormier, over his missing of DEI quota targets. Just let that cook in your brain. And there's going to be a link to this in the show notes. If you haven't seen this, it's about 10 minutes. I highly encourage you to sit there and watch the whole thing. Because when you do, you see the depth of the evil of DEI in a business in action. Krishna on the Zoom says things like this. You've got to move both forward by a percentage. That leads to a plus on your bonus. He was talking about hiring Hispanic people. And then he says, and by the way, if you lose, meaning you don't hit your Hispanic target, you lose part of your bonus. Krishna also goes on to say, and when he said this, I almost shit myself. And he says it, you got to watch the video. He says it in the most blatant way. It's incredible. And also note, he's of Indian descent, which makes him Asian. He says, and I quote, Asians are not an underrepresented minority in tech in America. I'm not going to finesse this. For blacks, we should try to get towards 13%. And obviously, by definition, deprioritize Asians. In the video, he goes on to say that IBM's ultimate goal is to have 50-whatever percent female the, the percentage of the population that is female needs to be represented in IBM's uh, employee base, as well as all of the other minorities and underrepresented groups that they're tracking. So now we have on record the CEO of IBM saying that he is paying his executives to either achieve or not achieve DEI quotas that have to map to the population of the United States. That's what he fucking says. It goes even further. During the call, Cormier, who is groveling. I've never seen a CEO of a major company grovel like this fucking guy grovels. It's disgusting. In my world, he doesn't get to be CEO of a lemonade stand. Well, so he is groveling to Krishna on this call. And he's saying, you know, we're, we're going to working hard at it and we're doing this. And I hired the head of a DEI and I elevated her to the executive team. And we talk about this every single day. And we've even, and he uses some bullshit mamby-pamby speech, like uh, something about uh, moving people on who were not on board with this space, which is code for we fired a bunch of people who um, didn't fit to make room for our DEI quotas. And as of this recording, over 120 people have come forward and said they believe they were fired for no reason other than they were not one of the DEI chosen groups at IBM. And so um, we'll continue to watch this space. I predict that IBM is going to be hit with multi-billion dollar lawsuits and it's going to really hurt and they will be found guilty, as will many other companies. We'll get to that in a second. Now, DEI evil is not just in schools and not just in businesses. It's in our justice system. And in a place like California, where I live, it's deep. You see, California is the most pro-criminal state in the U.S. And I could never figure out why until all this shit happened. And then I was like, oh, I get it. Cops 
a.k.a. the law, a.k.a. equal justice, is the oppressor. And criminals are the oppressed. You see, it's not because they're bad people. It's not because they're evil. It's not because they did anything bad. It's not because they hurt or killed anybody. No, no. You see, they just had a bad childhood. They're not a bad person. It's their circumstances. And it's our fault that their circumstances made them kill somebody. And that's why, in the state of California, murderers on average are in jail for 15 years. Rapists, four. And where I live, fentanyl dealers who are caught with enough drugs to kill over 2,000 people get released by judges the day they fucking get arrested. And you think, how could this be this way? This is fucking insane. Well, the way, the reason it gets this way, once you understand the DEI ethos, it all becomes clear. Criminals are the oppressed and we should forgive them and take care of them. And actually, it's our fault that they were forced to commit their crimes because we, the oppressors, created the oppressing environment for them and they had no choice. That's the thinking. This thinking in our legal system comes with profound injustice. And let me share with you a recent story. A few weeks ago in our, in our town, a 58-year-old woman who had a history of uh, drinking and driving, who had a history of multiple vehicle infractions, uh, some of which were dangerous. Uh, she'd been arrested for these things, et cetera, et cetera. At about eight o'clock or so at night, came to a busy uh, intersection that is kind of a, a, a popular, well-known intersection. It's not like uh, it was off on a back road or something like that. And rather than stopping at this intersection, she kept going at somewhere between 30 and 40 miles an hour, according to reports. Well, she hit and killed a 70-year-old woman who was beloved, who had lived in the community for the bulk of her life, who was a mother, a grandmother, a sister, a friend, somebody well-known in the community and beloved by the community. Now, come to find out, that after this person killed her, not only did she take off, hit and run murder, she also got her son to help her clean the car, quote unquote, clean DNA off the car, wrap your head around that, and then get counterfeit fake license plates. Ultimately, this criminal was caught. And today, She's facing the consequences, and here are the consequences. Maximum sentence for hit-and-run killing of somebody, taking off, washing the car, changing the license plates, which proves she knew what she did was wrong. Maximum sentence in California, four years. But, as we came to find out, this individual is an undocumented immigrant with a known alcohol problem, which means she will likely serve less than 18 months. Why? Because she's the oppressed, of course. And she's going to spend time in jail, 
as she will. She'll be fed. She'll be cared for. She's going to get special treatment in jail for her alcoholism. When she leaves jail, she's going to get a program paid for by taxpayers. Our county has one of the best recidivism programs, particularly for women inmates. So she will go into that program. She will be helped to get a place to live. Uh, She'll be helped to get a job. And in the state of California, it is illegal to ask somebody about their prior criminal record. So this killer will serve less than two years in jail, most likely, and be very well taken care of and exit in a materially improved place from which she entered. And the seven-year-old woman will still be dead and her family will still be crying. All right. So now, where does all this leave us? Thanks to the Ivy League presidents and the CEO of IBM and the daily radical legal injustice in California, this racist, anti-American, illegal hypocrisy has been exposed. I believe DEI's days are numbered. Legendary journalist, uh, a woman I respect very deeply uh, or very much, Barry Weiss, came out and called for the end of DEI recently. And if you haven't read her post about that, I highly recommend it. And I highly recommend her podcast called Honestly. And you might not know, but universities have been freezing, cutting, and or reevaluating their DEI programs around the U.S. And a recent study showed that companies with DEI programs, the programs have dropped 33% since 2020. There are reports out there that claim, I can't back this up, but I've seen it out on the internet, that Amazon, Twitter, Meta, Microsoft, Nike, Redfin, and others are dramatically cutting back and or reevaluating their DEI programs. Just this week, I swapped texts with a super successful Silicon Valley CEO who I know, who just took on a new job. I congratulated him. We we're going back and forth on text. And one of the things that he shared over text was one of the critical negotiation points for him taking the job with the board, no DEI. He insisted on it. And they hired him. Right now, this is the beginning of the end of DEI. And as we move into 2024, we might very well likely see a hashtag NDEI, hashtag stop DEI movement take real flight. As more people realize that DEI has metastasized, as more CEOs realize that diversity, equity, and inclusion has become the machine that it claimed to rage against. Which, of course, begs the question, what do we replace DEI with? There's still radical injustice. There's still radical lack of equality. Well, here's what I think we should replace DEI with. The U.S. Constitution, the 14th Amendment, no state shall deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Now is the time for equality. Equality for all Now is the time to stop DEI and implement equality for all programs in alignment with the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment. And the other thing we must do is deeply strengthen our punishment for the evil at places like Navy Federal. It is more than likely that those criminals who are fucking over black people 
will suffer very few circumstances, and certainly justice will not be served at Navy Federal. I would love to be wrong about that. And this is where we need to focus. We need to strive on equality, and we need strong punishments in our universities, our schools, our businesses, and our government for people who do not implement equality for all. And if we do that, if we focus on equality, well, maybe we'll get a little bit closer to a more perfect union. So I hope that gives you some food for thought. I'd love to hear what you think. I'm okay if you disagree with me, but I'd love to hear why and the substance behind why. And I hope I provided you with enough substance and detail behind why I believe, why I believe, and some of the conclusions that I've come to. Most of all, I want to thank you for pressing play. I love doing this podcast. I love having you with me on this ride. We have some amazing conversations. We've got some incredible episodes uh, coming soon. Some that I've just literally got off the podcast and thought, holy fuck, I can't believe I was in that conversation. And I love sharing that stuff with you guys. And uh, from the bottom of my heart, I wish you peace. I wish you a great time and love with your family. And uh, hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Thanks so much. Stay legendary and follow your different.